Welcome to the Catholic Reading Challenge. I'm Mike. And I'm Jess. And the only thing we like better than reading is talking about what we are reading with friends. In 2019, we are reading through a new category each month. So listen in and read along. And remember, as Mortimer J. Adler said, in the case of good books, the point is not to see how many of them you can get through, but rather how many can get through to you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to 2020. It's good to be here talking to you guys on a sunny day in January, which we don't get many of. So it's nice. Yeah, it's January 17th, uh, Friday, right after school. I just got home from DeMatha teaching. So we're trying to record at different times because sometimes when we record in the evening or we plan to record in the evening, we are tired and I don't think we're at our best. So <laughs> this time of day, we're, we got a little bit more spring to our step, but it is a nice kind of sunny cold crisp day here in maryland apparently it's supposed to snow maybe maybe it just depends tomorrow if the uh the temperature's cold enough so it definitely feels like snow i stepped outside today and i had it has that feeling in the air i hope it doesn't snow i got plans tomorrow but whatever <laughs> we so don't no, get that much no we don't get that much and it, you know it's pretty the kids like it it's so funny how differently the kids react to snow than i react to snow i think snow's pretty but then I just want it to go away. The kids absolutely love snow. and I Well, you never mind it when you get a snow day. No, that's nice. Getting off is, is really, really nice to be. So funny you talk to like other people who don't work in academia or aren't teachers. And you tell them that you, oh, I don't work. I'm not going to work today. I have a snow day. And they're like, yeah, I kind of have to snow. Well, unfortunately, there there's certain teachers that also feel that way. And I don't know. If you're a teacher and you're complaining about a snow day, you need to ask some serious questions about <laughs> just your perspective in life and your priorities. So that is my that is my word to all teachers out there who get upset when they don't think there's enough snow to warrant a snow day. I think you've lost touch with humanity. So anyways, enough about ripping on teachers who don't like snow days. Um, what's up, Jess? Well, I'm excited to talk about this first Flannery O'Connor yeah, story. Yeah, me too. Me too. So we're, with, uh, we're spending time with Flannery O'Connor in this month of January. And we have two selections, the first of which uh, is The Displaced Person, which uh, so the idea was to read that at the beginning of the month, and then we'll follow it up um, with this discussion. Then follow up, the next story will be um, Parker's Back. And so we'll have our second discussion at the end of the month about that. So we'll probably just jump right in here. Yeah. Um, I think we both have a lot of thoughts about this story. Yeah, I had not read this story um, before we just did it this month and I was really, really taken by it. Um, and it I, is one of her longer ones. It kind of is broken into three parts. That's true. It's funny when I was reading it, cause I was reading the PDF, I got to the first section. I thought the story was over and I thought, man, that's kind of abrupt. Then I realized that there were three more sections. So it was about, I don't know, 40 pages. Yeah. 35 or 40 maybe. Yeah. But, um, uh, do you have any, Thoughts, anything you would share with someone who this was their first time reading a Flannery O'Connor story, what would you say? Well, it's this funny. Their first experience. I don't know. I, I I think from a literary standpoint, the thing the thing that sometimes happens with authors, even authors that I really, really like, is that they are very good at prose, they're very good at writing, or they're talking about something that's very interesting. Yeah. And every once in a while those things cross. And when they do, you get a master, uh, someone who, who's, who's a legend, someone who you want to read all the time. It's funny. One of my favorite authors is Walker Percy, 
And I don't want to say I, don't th- I think Walker Percy is limited when it comes to his prose. I, I don't want to say that. But when you read Flannery O'Connor and the way that she brings you into a place, the way that she brings you into a character, it's almost a little bit scary. And I say that because it's just so real it's to so me. It's so real, which and, is the which is the talent. I mean, with writing fiction, what what you're ultimately doing is describing something that's real. Yeah, and she does it. You're doing it well. When she does it, it's almost disturbing. Like if you think about the way people are depicted on um, television, if you think about the way people are depicted in films, yeah, and even if you think about the way people are depicted in, in some works of fiction, they're not really depicted as people. But Flannery O'Connor thrust humanity in your face. Oh yeah, and all its and all its messiness, um, and and that's why it's like this entertaining yeah, kind of uncomfortable feeling that I have when I read her where I can't stop turning the page but but I do I do find it um I don't I don't think the right word's taxing because it's not like I don't want to read her it is just it is she just uh, it, it's she reminds you of aspects of humanness that exist reminds you of yourself yeah that exist within you yes. that you might not want to think about you definitely don't want to think about them and actually I think that's the key if you find yourself in a Flannery O'Connor story and certain characters are making certain other people come to your mind, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's a moment for you to all of a sudden stop and ask yourself why that is. Because though that might be true and these characters might remind you of other people, I think ultimately they should remind us a little bit of ourselves or at least be a, there should be the good, the bad, or the ugly, right? Mm-hmm. There should always be an introspection of, well, how am I a little like this character? Because, like you said, they're so real. They're such a capture of just human brokenness that it touches on what we're all capable of. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I actually think that's why she is such a um, um, kind of an antidote to the way that people are depicted in, in modern storytelling and fiction, which is very... A lot of times when we create characters now, they like serve a purpose and the caricature, it might be a political cause or a social cause or a way that I view the world. And when we do that, we kind of limit, we don't produce humans, we produce caricatures. Mm-hmm. And with her, um, there's no room for that. And I, I really wonder how she would be received today if she was alive and she was a modern writer because of, of the humanness of her characters. And it doesn't just stop with her characters. She also brings you into places um, oh, yeah. The farm that's in this story, you can smell it, you can feel it, you can taste it, um, you you can sense it. And it, that's the thing about her. It's just so visceral. It's so visual. It's it's so uh, sensual. It, it, it just kind of wraps itself around you and brings you into a place which is foreign, yet at the same time very, very familiar. Yeah, so we're make, you know we're gonna operate from the assumption that you all have read the story. So if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read the story, hit pause, go read the story, come back to us because um, you know we're not gonna give a summary. There's there's not really time for that. So um, read the story before you you know take on this discussion, listen to this discussion. But I think maybe it might be helpful to look at some of the things that are going on in this story, but also consider how like if we just said that it's really helpful for us to see ourselves or even, or, you know, what we're capable of in some of these characters. Maybe it's helpful to do that in each of the main characters here and look at what's, what, what are some of the things she's pulling out about human nature in these characters? Um, 
the thing with short story with short stories with the genre itself is you don't want to skip over anything because mm-hmm. this is a short amount of real estate here literary real estate there's not there's there's no wasted words and well and with with excellent writers they're definitely not wasting words everything is in there for a reason right um so you want to kind of look at the clues that you see pop up at the beginning for what's coming at the end and who like what's the character at the very very the first word of the story that's also at the end of the story and a kind of a key player that you don't want to overlook in the story because there's a lot of symbolism are you asking me this? Yeah. Okay, well, I got to look. So the first word in the story, the peacock. The peacock. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in this story that has to Guys, be I had the peacock. book in front of me, so I don't think that I knew <laughs> the first word of the story at the top of my head. I did not. But so for those of you who don't know, I think a lot of people know Flannery O'Connor raised peacocks. And mm-hmm. um, it, there, there are these magnificent birds. But I want to say, actually... Mike was speaking about her prose earlier. I have Mystery and Manners in front of me right here. It's her book of prose. And it is a book of collected essays by her. And it's phenomenal. I mean, you could not, like, if you have not read this, this should go to the top of your reading list. It's just on so many levels wonderful. But she has the very first um, essay in this book is on, uh, it's called The King of Birds. And she's basically talking about her peacocks and how people often, um, how people react to this bird. Oh, I can tell you from firsthand how <laughs> people react. Yeah. When I went to the second time I went to the um, Walker Percy weekend down in St. Francisville, Louisiana, the first time I went, we stayed right in the little um, town area, which is really nice. But the second time, the people that I go with, the friends of mine, they got um, a bunch of rooms on a, I guess it was a farm or a plantation. I don't know what you would call it. And there were peacocks on this. Uh, I find them absolutely terrifying. Really? Yeah, they're pretty, but they have these long claws, um, and they're very, they're very exotic. And the way that they interact with you, um, oh, yeah. they're like nothing else. Yeah. No, I was very scared of them. And actually, my friend Josh, who was who was with, with me, thought it was so funny how terrified I was. I wasn't terrified, but, but um, would you be disinterested by them? Would you think of them as nothing to look oh, at? Oh no, no. There, but, there's something to behold. Oh yes. I, I paid respects, and, and when I did see them. I made sure to kind of, to, to not, I don't want to say keep my distance, but um, yeah, I did. But so there's this theme in the story where you have a couple characters who, you know, Mrs. Uh, McIntyre, who owns the farm, and then you have Mrs. Shortley at the beginning of the story who, who works in there. And their attitude toward the peacock is actually one of kind of annoyance. Like mm-hmm. once the birds are gone, she says they're not going to, they're not going to have any more. Once they die off, that's it. She doesn't want to keep them anymore. Um, and they're kind of like, they're so used to seeing them, they don't even see the beauty in them. But the priest, right, comes, every time he comes to the farm to talk to Mrs. McIntyre, he's just in awe, in in, in, Mac- in Mrs. McIntyre's words, at like in an idiot's way. Like she just thinks he's, he looks like such an idiot admiring these birds with his mouth open and just with such awe when they open their feathers. And in this essay, The King of Birds, um, Flannery O'Connor says says a couple things that made me think of this story. She says, the usual reaction is silence, at least for a time. The cock opens his tail by shaking himself violently until it is gradually lifted in an arc around him. 
Then before anyone has a chance to see it, he swings around so his back feathers face back faces the spectator. This has been taken by some to be an insult and by others to be whimsy. I suggest it means only that the peacock is equally well satisfied with either view of himself. Since I have been keeping peafowl, I've been visited at least once a year by first grade school children who learn by living. I am used to hearing this group chorus as the peacock swings around. Oh, look, look at his underwear. And there, and so she goes on to say like children and other people are like, wow, they're fascinated with different aspects of this bird. But then she also, um, and then she talks about another woman who just looked at him and said, amen, amen. Cause there's just, there's no other language that could sort of describe how beautiful. No, there, there is nothing like, like them. And, and yeah, you're right. And it would be funny. Something that about the characters in the story, other than the priest, because I think the priest is the only one who has kind of a, I don't know, kind of a bigger picture existential element to like what life is about. Right. The question that you have to ask with a lot of these characters is like, okay, well, why are they doing what, what they're, they're doing? doing yeah. And it's just kind of life is this burden, right? And yeah. you, you kind of got to do these things. And, you know, maybe I'm being, I'm being um, critical of people who have gone through really, really tough times. But yeah, to dismiss this beauty of this peacock as kind of a, a nuisance, to dismiss people as, as a nuisance, um, yeah. the situation that you're in and is like this heavy kind of burden or this nuisance was, was something that I saw with, with a lot of the characters throughout yeah. the story. Yeah. So there was this theme I felt like throughout that here you had sort of this transcendent thing mm -hmm. in front of them um, that kept being overlooked. Yeah. And, uh, you have this one character who's who sort of, who who wasn't missing it throughout the story. The priest. And, yeah. But the bird's still there. Like the end of the story, the bird's still with us. The priest is still with us. Um and then then basically Mrs. McIntyre is left with both of them alone, right? That's right. That's um, right. And she's she's an invalid at this point. She can't get out of bed, I don't think. It indicates that she has some type of palsy that she developed after the the incident at the end of the story. Um, and that she is sitting there and, and it indicates that the priest, what the priest talks to her about is, yeah. is things of, of God, of, of things of yeah, doctrines of the church. Yeah. So it's really interesting. One thing that I, a theme that jumped out at me that I found kind of apparent to some of the, the social conversations that are going on right now with like immigration and oh, things yeah. like that is this idea that, especially in the United States, well, everywhere, somebody, everyone is from somewhere else. Yes. Mm -hmm. So these characters who are talking about, oh, you know, these immigrants that come over here and they, if you're an American yeah. and you're, and you're white, mm -hmm. your family is not from America. Okay. And eventually you, excuse me, you go back far enough, you were a displaced person and how quickly the characters in the story either forget that or reject that or in denial about it. And as this Polish guy comes over, who is incredibly productive, who does good things, doesn't bother anyone. All they can do is dismiss him because he came from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But we all came from somewhere else. And that's the one thing I kept on thinking about is, is Flannery O'Connor is laying on thick about um, the priest clearly, again, had this heart to take these people who have been through this tragedy, which is the Holocaust and, and after World War II and 
these these poles that were were in camps, and it talked about that to come over and give them a give them a life over here. Yeah. But all the the characters could think of the, the woman who owns the farm. What is her name? Yeah, again? Mrs. McIntyre. Was you know if they serve a purpose, fine. But other than that, they're kind of a, they're kind of a, a nuisance. Well, it's interesting. Well, so Mrs. McIntyre at first is very. Um, taken with this man because he's such a hard worker. But the reason she's taken with him is because she's going to get so much work out of him, yeah. right? She's get she she's using this person for her own gain. So she's ex, she's sort of happy and positive towards him because she's going to get something for it and that the, she feels the other people who work you know on her farm don't give her. And the moment she turns on him, ironically, mm-hmm. is when she finds out that I think he has a niece. Is that who yeah. is his niece? Sixteen-year-old niece, who he wants to set up with one of the um, the black farm workers, and she scandalized the idea that a, a white woman would be married to a, a black man, right. and she confronts um, the 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 Polish uh, what's his name, Mister, yeah, Mister Geizak, Geizak about it, and and Geizak can't even comprehend what she's saying because Geizak responds to her, she's been through three. Camps. Like, right. He still doesn't mm-hmm. speak that great of English, but he he gathers that she has a problem with the like the interracial nature of her something. He's and, like, wait a minute, she's a, <laughs> she's in a camp. Like, like she just survived yeah. World War Two, and and this is what you're hung up on, and all the things that like Miss McIntyre, like I'm trying to up upkeep culture. Like I'm trying mm-hmm. to like we can't have this madness when um. Y- the, the character is is a hard worker. He's not doing anything wrong. He wants to bring his niece over so she can have a good life, all these good things. And that little thing completely turns her against him to make him think that uh, her to think that he's this monster because he actually has the correct moral position in this situation. And just to see how out of touch she is. Yeah. And so suddenly she then takes on like everyone else's opinion of him of course everyone mm-hmm. else doesn't like him because he is hardworking and he's coming in and he's threatening there yeah. and isn't that always what isn't that often what we as human beings why we resent other people are are why we um why bigotry exists why any sort of uh, dislike for another person or a group of people exists is we feel threatened well i think the biggest thing that i picked up in my reading of it and it goes along with what you were just saying is the scapegoat. Yeah. That everyone needs a scapegoat. Yeah. And the we displaced just, person, yeah. this immigrant coming over, is an easy scapegoat. Well, yeah. if he wasn't around, then everything would be okay. He's coming in here and messing up you all, know, all, all the stuff. good things that we've got going on. And, and it's used as manipulation, too, from one group to another, mm-hmm. from um, from the shortlies to... And it's also, again, in this country, if you are... European in background, you right. came from somewhere else. And, so, and somewhere along the line, someone gave you grace. Someone gave your family grace. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, we're Americans. And these people are from somewhere else, which is distinctly not American. It's actually also distinctly against the gospel. Right. And the priest, again, who, who probably has a greater understanding of, of humanity, like oh, my, my humanness, it's funny. I ask the students this sometimes when we're talking mm-hmm. and you know, I, when there's this debate around, like, I pledge allegiance to the flag. And I tell the kids, ultimately, my allegiance is not to the United States of America. Ultimately, my allegiance is to Christ. And that is greater than my allegiance to a, a national cause or anything like that. Right. And you can see it makes certain people 
uncomfortable. And I think that's why kind of the Catholic Church, the history of the Catholic Church in the United States, um, there's been times where like when JFK was running for office, like, well, is he going to answer to the Pope, right? He's a, mm-hmm. he's Catholic. But th- th- I really think one of the, the things that is, is a beauty of Catholicism is the universality of it and that, that people from different backgrounds, different races, different countries, all of us are, are one church. And that, that is greater than any type of national identity I have or any even type of ethnic identity. And th- the people in this story, when they have an opportunity to kind of to, to embrace the displaced person, right. to empower the displaced person, they use him as a scapegoat and they ultimately kill him. Yeah. And if you remember at the end, and I have this, I have this underlined, when she's arguing with the priest about having to fire um Oh yeah, she she knows internally that it's wrong, but she wants this. She see the priest is like this um, litmus. You know, he he's gonna give her. It's like he's looking for this litmus test. Like I just want, I just want affirmation of my position, like that I can do this. And I just she doesn't want to give him his notice until she's sort of she feels like she gets she's justified in doing so, or she's justified herself to the priest, right? Yes. So what it, what is it that you said you under or that did you say you marked something? Yeah, she gets in the argument about the priest and she's talking oh, yeah. about and he's talking about Christ and stuff. And Miss McIntyre says, as far as I'm concerned, she said and glared at him fiercely. Christ was just another DP, displaced person, mm-hmm. right? Well, because he always talking to her about Christ, right? And um, every conversation, so she's just kind of lost. She's kind of loses her temper there. She's like, oh my gosh, you know, she just jumps in and she's just, she's kind of like, enough about this. Like, let's get back to, she, doesn't she say something in there? I'm not theological, I'm practical. The, the only right? time that religion is used by the characters in the story is when it benefits them. Yes. And they yes. create this kind of religious narrative that justifies incredibly wicked actions. And they actually know nothing of religion. They know mm-hmm. nothing of Christianity. They know nothing of theology. The only one who does is the priest, which creates in him and dictates the way that he should behave morally. Right. Um, and everyone else just kind of uses religious language as a way to to justify um, horrific actions by the end of the book. Murder. Right. And, yeah. And um, But obviously they're not too... Yeah, they, they, they make... Um, I think say things like, oh, I'm a good Christian person, but obviously she doesn't really care too much to talk about Christ. And um, actually in the part where the part where the priest is standing in the yard as he's about to leave from one of his visits and he's just, she, she says, the priest stood transfixed, his jaw slack, he's staring at the peacock and the peacock's opening his wings and those... And so he's t- he's taking in the vision of this peacock's wings and what they look like, and you know Mrs. McIntyre wondered where she'd ever seen such an idiotic old man. So she's just staring at him like, "What in the world is he doing?" And he says, "Christ will come like that." And then at another point, he says, "The transfiguration." So he's like, he's just everything is 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 infused with yes, his, yes. his his um his that's I don't want to say his worldview. Everything is infused by. Pointing towards redemption, well, or pointing towards the greater the supernatural in the natural yes. world, which yeah. everyone else misses. And after he says that Christ will come like that, this is what Flannery writes. She says Mrs. McIntyre's face assumed a set puritanical expression, and she reddened. Christ in the conversation embarrassed her the way sex had her mother. 
<laughs> you know I what? That's like that that's line. that's half the people I know. Like I it, loved that yeah, line. It was so perfect. It's yeah. exactly well, but you know, and, and I think it, she nails it. And if that was true when she wrote this in the year two thousand twenty, there's certain situations. Well, just don't bring up Jesus. Yeah, like, don't yeah. bring up Christ because that that's embarrassing. But it, it, like the priest, it's everything, and he sees reality through this redemption, and everything is is infused, like you said, the supernatural and the natural. There's not this distinct line between the practical and the spiritual. They they all flow into one another, which which makes makes the world beautiful. But also makes us good, or or, or oh, not. Yeah. It's the difference between good and evil. Because if you are living in, in just a utilitarian, practical manner, um, that you're incapable of being yeah. good. Because things that inconvenience you, like yeah. taking on displaced persons, like people, people yeah, people inconvenience, inconvenience you. Well, this us. is getting yeah. in the way of what I want. Yeah, interesting. The, the, I want to read the very end of yeah. the, the story. I, I think this is the part that I put on Instagram today. The yeah. evening, that evening, Mr. Shortly left without notice to look for a new position. And the Negro, Salk, was taken with a sudden desire to see more of the world and set off for the southern part of the state. The old man asked her could not work without company. Mrs. McIntyre hardly noticed that she had no help left for she came down with a nervous affliction and had to go to the hospital. When she came back, she saw the place would be too much for her to run now. And she turned her cows over to a professional auctioneer who sold them at a loss and retired to live on what she had while she tried to save her declining health. A numbness developed in one of her legs and her hands, and her head began to jiggle, and eventually she had to stay in bed all the time with only the colored woman to wait on her. Her eyesight grew steadily worse, and she lost her voice altogether. Not many people remember to come out to the country to see her except the old priest. He came regularly once a week with a bag of breadcrumbs, and after he had fed these to the peacock, he would come and sit by the side of her bed and explain the doctrines of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what I think a major theme is in Flannery O'Connor's writings, is the, the forms that grace comes. Oh, absolutely. And yes. this lady being bedridden, right, going through what she, she went through, she's now in a position of humility and of, of, of openness forced by her situation to hear about Christ and the yeah. only person who comes to see her is this priest. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so through all these horrific things, could she have found redemption or 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 could she have a transformation? It's similar to the end of um um The River. Our good man is hard to find. Oh, is that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When the, the character is killed well, by so many the misfit. Yeah. This idea like Grace comes in very interesting ways, and it just scandalizes the modern mind. And it also scandalizes the way I think a lot of Christianity has been presented in the 20th century in the United States, oh, which is totally. if you're serving Christ, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. You're going to avoid suffering. Yeah. And, yeah. But no, actually, grace, no. you could argue that grace's primary means is, is suffering. You could argue that suffering is a grace many times in our lives, absolutely. Well, yeah. very cool. Very cool. Do you have anything else you want to, you want to say before... Right. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's a good place to close, like the theme of grace. I think sometimes when you see, I think a lot of people are, um, I've heard people, you know, today have kind of a, a negative reaction to Flannery because they don't understand the violence in her stories and they find it disturbing. Um, but I think it's because we come to it with a modern sensibility. And so we don't really understand what violent, like what that symbolism means. And the the reason she it's sort of she has to use something to wake us up 
Like it's the, you know, and she even describes, she describes this way. Sometimes the author really has to shout to get our attention Mm -hmm. because in the world that we live in, we are so numb to truth. And sometimes we only see it if it's really visceral. And if you think about anyone who's grown up kind of in Sunday schools and with cartoons and things like that, what we also do to the Bible, which is an incredibly strange book Uh with incredibly strange stories with people who are very similar, you can see them in a Flannery O'Connor story. Oh, yeah. Is we can't understand, like, the realness of it, so we, like, domesticate it. Yes. We make it real cutesy, and it completely loses its otherness, um, what it's what's it supposed to confront us with. Um, and it, it's just interesting how Flannery O'Connor just shoves in your face the way grace can can come after us in ways that we would never choose for ourselves. Um, but ultimately, the only thing that matters, right, is is the infinite. Um, and I think that's why when the character, the, when the when the Polish man dies in the story, it didn't have the feeling of tragedy that maybe another death that he was receiving his his yeah. communion and, and last rites, yes, and yeah. and even the way the priest reacted to it, it, there wasn't like this kind of shattering of of like oh my gosh what is happening. The priest was very calm and collective in that moment, but. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a good place to end. It was a wonderful story, and I look forward to reading the second story, the second part. Yeah, so some of these themes, these are maybe some things to look for in the next Flannery story that we read and talk about the next month, uh, the end of the month. So keep some of these things that we've talked about in mind because I think that they will emerge again in the next story. And uh, we'll also be posting um, in the next day or so the essays, uh, excuse me, and the short stories that we're reading for our next author for February. Great. So we'll get those. And what I'm was the Flannery back. O'Connor story, the second one we're reading? So the second one we're reading is Packer's Back. Okay, very so, cool. Uh, Parker's Back. I keep wanting to say Packer's Back. Parker's Back. Parker's Back. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.